This is Heidi Gardner, and you're listening to Radio Free Leader. Welcome, everyone, to another episode of Radio Free Leader. I'm your host, David Berkus, best-selling author, speaker, and business school professor. And each week, we're bringing you amazing interviews with outstanding thinkers and incredible doers. All of these interviews are designed to help you lead smarter by sharing insights from social science and practical applications for leadership, innovation, and strategy. Make sure you stay up to date. Make sure you never miss an interview by joining our community. You can sign up at davidberkuscom slash podcast. Click on any of the episodes and there's signups right there or straight at davidberkus.com. You can also, if you're listening on your smartphone and you're in the United States, just text the word radio free to 33444. We'll send you some amazing resources that we can't really share in audio format on the podcast, including the Radio Free Leader Starter Kit. This is a collection of our most popular episodes sent right to your email inbox. So again, to get all of that, just go to davidberkuscom slash podcast or text Radio Free, all one word, to 33444. Now let's get started with this week's interview. So who are you and what do you do? I'm Heidi Gardner. I'm a distinguished fellow at Harvard Law School's Center on the Legal Profession. That's the research position I hold at Harvard Law School, but I also have teaching positions here. As a lecturer, I teach our graduate law students. Uh, I'm teaching a course right now called Understanding Law Firms as Businesses, and I also teach in our executive programs, and I tend to teach in other executive programs focused outside the legal industry as well. And and this is not the only thing you've done. You've got a, a, a storied career that you're pulling from, too, in addition to the research side. I, I actually you, I kind of made my head spin reading your bio and reading through everything from McKinsey Consultant to studying at London School of Economics, London Business School. I read somewhere you, you've actually either worked or studied on four continents. I have had the privilege of living and working on four continents. That's right. I was a Japanese major in undergrad, so I lived in Japan, in Tokyo and the Osaka region. I worked with McKinsey in London and South Africa, and I had a Fulbright Fellowship in Germany, and I lived in France with my then-fiancé, now-husband, for some time as well, and have been really privileged to live and experience those different cultures firsthand. Hmm. No, that, that's awesome. And it kind of, what's what's interesting to me is I, I read, when I, when I was reading the new book, Smart Collaboration, we're, we're here on the occasion of, of its launching for those who are just sort of like, wait, why why are these two talking? Um, when, when I was reading it, I was thinking like, yeah, this is someone who's definitely had to learn to sort of break down silos and barriers, et cetera. Um, especially, I mean, bigger ones than most organizations had. You've had to do it with cultural barriers to begin, right? Absolutely. And I think that the experience I had as a young woman working in Japan, for example, and teaching at a university in Japan to people who were considerably older than me, that is phenomenal experience in not only figuring out where one's strengths are in connecting with people, but also empathizing and taking their perspective and appreciating why it is that they might be hesitant to learn from somebody who looks like me, for example. And when I can get past some of those you know, initial defensive reactions or when I find that I actually have a, a much greater appreciation for what it takes. And I think I've been lucky to study and work in so many places that now I, I try and take that 
perspective, the, the kind of other person's perspective as a starting point. And when I'm working with you know, professionals and executives, I can draw on some of those experiences. You know, just today, for example, I was teaching at Harvard Business School um, on an executive program there, and there were people from, you know, even more than four continents, but because I had some appreciation for how they might experience me as, uh, you know, as somebody standing before them, I, I hope I was able to, to make a more human connection with them and to impress on them why, in turn, it's important for them to do it when they're facing clients and customers. No, that, make, that makes a lot of sense. And I think, you know, it's funny, it, it, um, in, in addition to experiences, you've had a wealth of research in this and in, at the graduate master's level and again in, in dissertation level research into collaboration, why it's so important, why empathy is a, is a huge part of that. And, and like I said, I, I sort of read into your history. I don't want to put your own life story into you, but I feel like these two things are obviously related. The desire to um, study these things from the desire to have to kind of learn them on the fly. The interesting thing is your timing couldn't have been better, right? So I feel like there's this weird paradox going on in business and in law firms as business um, today, which is that levels of required collaboration have never been higher. And it feels like silos have, I won't say have never been higher, but haven't been torn down as much as we would probably need for those new higher levels of collaboration. Is that is that fair? I, I think you put your finger on the paradox. I mean, the way we describe, and whenever I say we, by the way, I mean, it's clear that anybody who studies and writes about collaboration would be a complete hypocrite if uh, you know if I weren't to acknowledge all of the, the teams of people who are working on this issue with me. And I've been blessed with academics at institutions all around the world and postdoctoral fellows and doctoral students and mathematicians and all sorts of research assistants who have helped me along the way. But as we've been working collectively to understand this phenomenon of collaboration, what we've come to understand is that it really is more than a passing fad. And the reason we have such confidence in saying that is we think that the need for collaboration stems from two competing trends that honestly we only see accelerating going forward. The first is around specialization. I mean, any knowledge worker, whether it's a software engineer or a medical doctor or you name it, all of us have got to specialize more and more in order to stay at the top of our game. In other words, knowledge is changing so fast that if I want to claim to be the expert, I've got to define a fairly narrow patch where I'm going to be the expert. And, you know, concomitant with that, it means that I have to have deeper and deeper expertise in that area. But that level of specialization is happening across all sorts of industries that we see which is all fine and good and adaptive and helpful for people. But at the same time, the world we're living in, and I don't think I've ever imagined that it would be accelerating to this extent, is becoming increasingly volatile, uncertain, complex, and ambiguous. There's an acronym, VUCA, V-U-C-A, volatile, uncertain, complex, ambiguous. Wow, who isn't feeling that these days? And practically every hour it feels more and more volatile. And so when you put those, those two trends together, you've got narrow, deep experts and problems that are big and broad and complicated and require different kinds of experts. That's the argument for why we need people to collaborate. 
Yeah, no, I and I I started to sort of before before your book, you you made actually a great case for sort of what I was feeling anyway when I'm looking out into. There's a there's this um, in the sciences in the science in the research realm. There's this fascinating study. I think I want to say it's by Brian Uzi, but maybe it's just because I project so many good studies from Brian. From sci- fair enough. <laughs> from scientific uh, perspective, it's sort of like. In addition to the VUCA thing, and I think this is the case for business too, all of the easy problems have been solved, right? Like all of the things that I think could be solved inside of one person's intelligence seem like they've been solved. And now we're at higher level problems that require kind of much more than that. VUCA even adds even further to this. But it's just sort of this idea that um, despite what we want to believe, you the odds of solving any given business problem, organizational problem from just one mind are, if that were possible, they would have already been solved. Absolutely. Or said another way, even when organizations have a simple problem and they only need to hire one person to, you know, sort of help them import what somebody else has already figured out somewhere else, that's not particularly value add. And so organizations aren't willing to pay a lot for it. And so, you know, if any of the, the folks listening to this are on the client service side, what they need to be thinking about is, you know, when are my customers or when are my clients willing to pay for a more complex or sophisticated solution? Um, or alternatively, if you're the one who only ever offers the kind of solution that you can think, you know, think of all by yourself, chances are you're facing a really competitive market for that and probably in a price war situation, and if not already, very soon. Mm, that's a great point. That's a really good point. So, I mean, that's almost the definition of a commodity, <laughs> right? Is, you know, lots of people can offer it and it's been done before and now, you know, there's no differentiator. We're only competing on price. Totally. And I mean, it, and it speaks to that idea, you know, specialization is sort of another form of, of differentiation, which is, well, this is what's interesting too, is it, the, the other need for this collaboration, as you point out with specialization, but at the same time, people who learn how to be specialists, I feel like the first thing you learn when you go, I mean, you know this from your doctoral program even, like the further you go down a certain avenue, like the first thing that you learn is how to ignore all of the other specialties so you can focus in on your increasingly smaller part of the world. So training those people to think, look broadly and be able to actually interact with other specialists, where do we even start? Uh, I mean, I think that's such a, a, a great question, and it is a conundrum because in, as you mentioned, most graduate programs, we're training people to dig very deeply um, in a particular area, and we're rewarding them for thinking along those lines. But perhaps one way to imagine getting started on this is to take advantage of people's curiosity. I mean, many people who are attracted to uh, you know, organizational life these days, whether it's in academia or professional services or industry or you name it, are jazzed up by the idea of learning. Right? They're, they're curious. They want to understand how does it work somewhere else? What else could we be doing? And, you know, certainly the, you know, many, many, many psychology studies have shown the value of people being engaged in their work and finding it meaningful. And I think we could start there. People really, you know, in general, the kind of people we're talking about who are, you know, educated and ambitious and, you know, not necessarily ambitious in a ruthless sense, but just wanting to, to keep advancing in, in their own careers and their own mind, I think that's a great place to start. Because if we become over-specialized, frankly, we're going to end up surrounded by a lot of people just like ourselves. And that can get a bit 
mundane. Mm, no, I'll say for sure. And and again, if they're exactly like ourselves, then they're thinking exactly like ourselves. We come back to that one brain scenario, right? Where if they're coming exactly. up with those same ideas. So the book is really divided kind of nicely. After you, you sort of make this case for why we need collaboration, you look at it from a bunch of different angles, including, I mean, that solo specialist that we were just kind of hinting at before, but also from like, mm-hmm whether or not you're just being asked to join a team or whether or not you're leading for a team. And I wonder if we could take each in turn sort of starting from this idea of, okay, so you nobody, you got voluntold to be a smart collaborator, yes. right? <laughs> that, right? That's a little bit different than being the one that realizes you need to build the team. What, what's your advice for those folks that are in that first or second time where they're really having to do a very, very cross-specialty form of collaboration? Well, I mean, first I would say figure out what's in it for you. And that's a sort of counterintuitive place to start, right? A a lot of people imagine that if they're joining a team, somehow they're being altruistic and they are contributing to, quote unquote, somebody else's success. I'd challenge people to turn that on its head and say, what is it that you're going to get out personally of joining this endeavor? And frankly, it's a it's an okay question to ask. I think we should be transparent about this. I think we should challenge somebody if they're asking us to join a collective effort, challenge them and say, why me? You know, what is it that I bring? Is it my international experience? Is it my uh, expertise in organizational behavior? Is it the fact that I know a certain uh, customer segment very well? What is it about me that you want on the team? And if the team leader whoever is trying to organize this collaborative effort can't answer that question, well, it takes us right back to, you know, the question of why are we collaborating in the first place? Uh, Collaboration, the title of the book is Smart Collaboration. It's trying to differentiate what is smart about collaboration versus all the times when you throw a team against it without really being strategic. And if a team leader can't answer that question for every single person around the table, here's why you're on the team, here's how we're going to leverage your specialist knowledge, then it might not be smart collaboration. And, and I think it's fair to have somebody run away screaming. Uh, you know, they're going to, they're not going to be able to, to play to their strengths. Uh, you know, the team leader might not be strategic, in which case the meetings would be inefficient and so forth. So I think the, the first question anyone should be asking is why is everyone around the table? The leader needs to have thought about that before they invited the team in, and the participants need to be thinking about that before they accept the engagement. That would be where I'd start. Hmm. I mean, that's a, that's a solid place. And again, if that you know, we talked a bit about the leadership role, but if the leader's not doing it for you, um, you know, the the interesting thing about a, a lot of these, you actually, I, I forgot in the beginning to break down this distinction is there is a distinction between collaboration versus smart collaboration. Often yeah. in the in this response to this realization that we need collaboration, we sort of just throw these teams together. Not a lot of leadership yeah. oversight. It's just kind of like, well, two heads are better than one, therefore six are better than two. And so now yeah. we're, we're collaborating instead of thinking about oh, how do we do it efficiently and effectively? Without a doubt. And, and smart collaboration is incredibly deliberate. The way I define it is the integration of specialized expertise to tackle problems that none of those experts could have done on their own, which means that every player in there is somehow essential to creating a broader, more sophisticated, more comprehensive solution. And so if, if you know, six heads are frankly 
not better than one unless you know why all six heads are there and how they're going to be best deployed. Um, otherwise, it might just be a diffusion of responsibility or, you know, costly and risky and time consuming, all of those sorts of things. So if people don't know why they're collaborating, chances are it's not smart collaboration. Mm, totally. So that's sort of one of the things that befalls the leader or, the, or at least the project leader of this new yeah. collaborative team. What else is there from a leadership standpoint to keep in mind to make sure that we're doing this uh, smart, smartly? Can we do smartly? Can we make it an adverb? Smartly collaborating? We too? can oh, now. Perfect. Yes. All right. If, if, if Americans can verb any noun, then certainly they can uh, can make it into an adjective, uh, adverb as well. Awesome. But I think that the team leader needs to just get some fundamentals in place. You know, after you understand who's on the team, realizing that getting the best expert on the team is only half the battle. Because if you're not using their knowledge to the fullest, there's no point in having them on board. And there's some phenomenal research that's been done. It's not my research. It was conducted by uh, many people believe the, it, he's the guru of uh, small groups and teams research, the, the late professor Richard J. Hackman, J. Richard Hackman. And, um, and Professor Hackman um, passed away s s a few years ago, but his research really lives on. And all of us uh, who are um, protégés of, of Dr. Hackman believe very strongly in the value of a team launch. And, uh, and Professor Hackman's book, um, um, Collaborative Intelligence, brings this to life in such interesting ways. He was able to work across U.S. government agencies in the wake of 9-11 uh, and trying to get people who are in ostensibly you know, on the same side, um, trying to prevent terrorist attacks, um, but are operating in these deep, deep, deep silos uh, in different government agencies. And he was working to try to get greater collaboration in the sense of sharing and using their specialized expertise across government agencies. And, you know, with that research and, and frankly, you know, everything he had built on, up in, in his um, a tremendous career, was able to show the value of an effective team launch. And I think that's something that every leader needs to take into consideration. Um, you know, it's it's being strategic about who's on the team and then having a, a kickoff event where everyone gets to understand clearly what the objective of the team is, how they specifically play a role, and how everyone else on the team is going to contribute. The value in doing that is um, so that everyone you know, knows what's the resource base that they're working from and can keep a, an eye on whether indeed we're using people's knowledge to, to the fullest extent possible. But it also allows the leader to take on a different kind of role. You know, if I know what the five other people on my team are supposed to contribute, then it's much easier for me to do two things. Either go directly to the expert and get the advice or the inputs or whatever it is that I need from them, as opposed to going to the team leader and then having that leader become sort of a bottleneck in the information flow. Um, and so it allows me to get help that I need, but it also allows me to establish a level of peer-to-peer -peer accountability. If, if I know that everyone else knows what I'm supposed to be contributing, I'm a, more motivated to contribute that, and I'm more motivated to engage with other people and ask them, you know, are, are you contributing to the extent that you thought was possible? Are there ways that, you know, you would approach this differently? I know that you're an expert in topic X. I'm not seeing a lot of that in our findings so far. How do we use that better? And I think by creating that level of 
transparency and shared understanding about the, the role of different team members goes a long way in, in, in making the team ultimately more effective and more engaged. That's a great point. How much, I'm curious, uh, and I, I don't know that this was exactly in the book, maybe Dr. Hackman has some research on this too, or maybe you've done it, but how much does the, yeah, at a certain point, we're talking less about a, a team, like five people put together in a room working on a specific project, and more about kind of cultivating an almost network feel throughout the whole organization. You, you mentioned talking about Dr. Hackman working with, uh, you know, post-September 11th, working with the U.S. government. I mean, that was one of the big issues, right, is that suddenly we have this opponent that's not a state uh, it's not as formal and bureaucratic as we are. It's much more fluid. And now we have to learn to be as fluid as that so that we have those approaches across the whole network that you can go right out to the expert. Without a doubt. Without a doubt. And so what I have studied most is collaboration within organizations. And so, you know, we have a massive database um, that includes, say, timesheet records. So, you know, different kinds of professionals, accountants and consultants and lawyers keep track of their time, whether it's on a hourly or, or day by day basis. And for us, that archive of timesheets is an absolute treasure trove because there we have data that was collected uh, you know, ostensibly in a very objective fashion, how did I spend my time? But it allows us as researchers to understand not only what they were spending their time on, but whom they were spending their time with. And so we can then um, aggregate it at, say, the project level and say, you know, who were the four or eight or 20 people working on this project. And because it's timesheets, we have the, the date stamps and things, and we know who is working on it simultaneously. So we can get a rich picture then of who is working with whom and for how long and on what kinds of projects, and then how that extended over time and between departments and across offices and you know borders and so forth. And so we get this really rich picture of how people are interacting. And what's brilliant about it is we're not asking anyone to self-report because, you know, the, I think that kind of self-report data is valuable for a lot of kinds of research, but we have to admit that memory is very selective. I mean, if I asked you, name all your team members from the last year, there's a very good chance that you would remember high status people, but not the low status people. And if I were asking you to go back 10 years and name every one of your teammates on every project, that would be hopeless. But we can pull a decade's worth of timesheet records out of a firm's database and analyze it. And that's what we've got. So millions of data records that allow us to examine collaboration you know, within firms. Now, I think that a lot of our findings translate to inter organizational collaboration as well. And so, you know, if you take a, a realm that's really familiar to me, which is the legal services, Clients are much more sophisticated now about breaking down legal services into their constituent parts, you know, disaggregating the value chain and sending, you know, this part offshore and this one to the low cost provider and using only the most expensive experts on the toughest part of the problem. And so now you have lawyers who need to collaborate with competitors and outsourcing organizations and offshore organizations and those sorts of things. And, you know, any of the barriers that existed between partners in the same law firm are magnified when you get competitive dynamics across organizations or, you know, multicultural and, and so on and so forth. So the, the book is mostly looking from an empirical standpoint about collaboration 
between people in the same company or organization, but we're, we're confident now that those findings are applicable and probably magnified when you're looking at inter-organizational collaboration. I mean, that, so now we're talking about an even grander scale, and now we're talking about kind of how there, there's some implications for how we're even defining an organization, not to pull from like Charles Handy's book and this idea of like mm. boundaryless, boundaryless organizations, but this is this is kind of where we're headed. Again, not, not because of any sort of desire to go here, but because the problems that we're facing that we're trying to solve for clients or for society are kind of leading us here. We're getting to that point. Without a doubt. And, and it's also a factor of uh, the specialization. Right? There are some people who are so specialized that frankly, no organization can afford to hire them full time, employ them full time because their esoteric expertise is only necessary every once in a while, hmm. um, right? And so so they are working across lots of different kinds of organizations, um, you know, because the their rare expertise is is only needed on, on you know, certain high class kinds of problems. Um, and so you have people who are, you know, transferring their knowledge between different kinds of, of organizations who are um, employed in lots of different ways that, you know, uh, are... Um, it would look very unfamiliar to somebody who handled employment contracts in the 1970s, for example. Uh, but it, it creates a fascinating environment in which to think about when collaboration adds value and how to think about those trade-offs. You know, is it really smart? It's, it's costly and risky and people need to have some level of trust in one another. And there, there are factors that can really um, pose obstacles to making collaboration as effective as it needs to be. And, and you know, that's why I keep emphasizing that people shouldn't default to collaboration because it's a feel-good factor. It really has to be deployed strategically. So you bring up a really interesting point about the employees that are so specialized it doesn't make sense or, or, or are so specialized that they're not used often enough to um, to make sense to employ them full time, which sort of I think leads to the other trend, which is in a, in the ironic trend that in addition to increases in collaboration, we're seeing increases in sort of solopreneur and solo thought leaders, a lot of whom are, are Radio Free Leader listeners. So this is an interesting tangent. W what advice do you have for those people? So I'm so specialized that I'm sort of out on my own as the special in this area, and yet learning these skills is almost kind of more important so that you're teed up and ready to work with a variety of different organizations when your skill set is needed. I think one of the essential factors is to have people keep their radar tuned for the kinds of, whether it's jargon or approaches or frameworks or problems or issues that are likely to come up in adjacent areas. And so, uh, you know, as, a, as, a, as an expert myself on, you know, collaboration of the kind we've just been talking about, I need to be uh, attuned to what kinds of organizational problems would warrant this kind of collaboration. And so, you know, I need to be thinking about cybersecurity, for example, right? It's an area that is so hot right now, um, but it's an area that is uh, deeply requiring various kinds of multidisciplinary experts in order to, to generate a holistic solution um, or, uh, you know, holistic um, program to mitigate the cybersecurity risk. So, you know, cyber is not something that I'm an expert at at all. And yet I read up on it enough to understand what's happening now, what kinds of experts do we need and how are they 
going to interact and how are they going to work across different sorts of organizational boundaries to help a, you know, a, a, a customer or whomever um, uh, mitigate the, the cyber risk. And so I think, you know, any um, solopreneur who's listening to this needs to kind of sit back and think, where are, what kinds of issues uh, am I going to be, is my expertise going to be implicated in? Um, and, and how do I get not at all to become an expert in these areas, but to get sort of just enough information to ask better questions and have my 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 senses, um, you know, on high alert, so that when someone says X, I think, aha, that's a signal that you know maybe we need to be thinking about this, uh, you know, in terms of smart collaboration. Should I ask this or that question? Um, and and I really encourage people to think about those sort of adjacent areas. Think about perhaps um, industries where their expertise is more valuable. You know, these days I think. Everyone believes um, that sector expertise, you know, whether that's hospitality or energy or finance or you name it, that that sector expertise is really increasingly important, partly because regulations differ so much between industries and um, in some cases the, the type of talent that's attracted to one sector is different than another. And so we need to have refined solutions um, for sectors. And, you know, that might be another way that people can think about it is what area is this, you know, what area is most likely to encounter the kinds of problems for which my expertise is a piece of the solution? Mm, that's really, really good advice. Um, and and kind of great advice to leave it on because now we've covered the full gamut of whether you are just on a team, whether you're in charge of leading that whole organization, or whether you're an organization of one, which actually means you're connected to lots of different ones. And we need your brilliance in order to smart collaborate. The book again is Smart Collaboration, How Professionals and Their Firms Succeed by Breaking Down Silos. Heidi, I wonder though if we could switch from some of the ideas in the book to you and ask you a couple questions. Absolutely. Our first one, um, what's the best advice you've ever received? That's a tough one. I've received such such great advice from so many different people. Um, I, I'm, I'm along the, the, the lines of, of of trust but verify, mm. um, in 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 the sense that you know, as a social scientist, I always have hypotheses and beliefs, and people are often in the qualitative work I do quite um, passionate and um, strong believers of whatever they have personally experienced and observed. But for me, taking an empirical approach to verify whether indeed that is a pattern or whether it, you know, people are suffering from some sort of recency bias or you know, some other salience factor that makes that appear to be more true to them uh, it, is something that I'm always seeking to understand. Mm, that's a great point. Um, what's an ideal workday look like for you? Uh, no two days ever look the same, but there are a few things that, uh, that, that make an ideal day for me. One is waking up well before my alarm clock, usually around 4.45 or 5 in the morning, and getting a couple hours of solid writing and thinking in before anyone else in my household gets up and before anyone expects me to start answering email. So my perfect workday starts with two solid hours starting in the pre-dawn era. Um, and then I try to have 
lots of collisions of different kinds of thinking. So, uh, you know, today I was uh, teaching executives, I was teaching my graduate students, I was working with some fellow researchers, and I uh, uh, was doing a bit of writing as well. And when I can have that kind of virtuous cycle going on where I'm hearing ideas and testing ideas and trying them out in the classroom and trying them out with experienced people, um, that for me is incredibly exciting. Um, and I guess any any ideal day, um, I'm, I'm incredibly fortunate I get to travel a lot and experience lots of new places and new people. Um, any day, it may not technically be part of my work day, but any day is going to have a, uh, uh, a significant amount of time for family as well, because I've got two young kids at home. And, uh, and if it's a really great day, it's going to have a, a workout at the gym too. Hmm. There's a lot of uh, smart collaboration actually in that ideal day, at least that I'm picking up on. So it, you're practicing what you preach. That's awesome. Um, what are you reading right now? Um, because I have kids at home, uh, one of the things I'm reading is Harry Potter mm. for the umpteenth time um, and, uh, and reading that out loud with one of my daughters every night. Um, the other thing I am just about finished with is a new book by Nick Lovegrove. Um, he's written The uh, Mosaic Principle, and it's a fascinating account of the dangers of over-specialization. Um, Nick was a, a, a partner at McKinsey when I was there and has uh, moved in and out of government and NGOs and uh, consulting and, and, and um, private sector work. And he talks about the value of being able to transport ideas across different domains and, um, and, and reduce the risk that over-specialization leads to a sort of blinkered mindset. Um, and it's a book that I can definitely highly recommend. Oh. So on the subject of ideas, that's an interesting segue to our, our next question. What do you believe that most people don't? What do you believe to be true that you feel like most people wouldn't agree with? Don't have a five-year plan. <laughs> okay. Can we dig into that a bit? Can I trust but verify on that? <laughs> Indeed. Indeed. Um, I wouldn't be where I am right now if I had stuck to a five-year plan. And indeed, you know, I actually at this point have completely abandoned the idea and I'm not even encouraging my students to have a five-year plan. Um, I think that uh, I was incredibly fortunate. I mean, we covered some of my background before, you know, living and working on four continents. That is not something I could have engineered. You know, if I had sat down at university and said, well, first I'm going to live here and then I'm going to move there and so on and so forth, especially because I was fortunate enough to marry an incredible man who also had international aspirations. And trying to do, you know, an international career is one thing, trying to do it as part of a, you know, a, a dual career uh, you know, couple is in incredibly um, difficult if you want to be sticking to a plan. I think um, for me, being able to uh, have a sense of what really matters to to me and to us as a as a couple and now as a family is 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 super important. We know how to make trade offs. Um, you know, for for me, having a a job with a great deal of intellectual autonomy is something that absolutely drives me. Um, but, uh, uh, you know, there may be some sacrifices in terms of the, the financial side. And it was something that I, I knew to be important for me. And it allowed me to make choices along the way that would preserve 
what matters most to me and um, and the kinds of choices that we can make. Hmm. That makes a lot of sense. I like it. I like it a lot. And actually, you're not the only person to have ever said that to me. I think uh, Daniel Pink is a big advocate of that idea that you, there's only so far you can plan in five years is a little is a lot too far. Um, our final question that the title of the show is Radio Free Leader. In your view, what makes someone a leader? What makes people a leader is whether anyone's following them or not. <laughs> I, I, sorry, I don't mean to be glib, yeah. but you know, I could declare myself to be a leader, and if I look behind me and there's nobody queuing up, the you know, sort of by definition, I'm not. Um, I think that uh, many people strive to be leaders, and that is. Um, that really isn't an objective to strive for. I think leadership is an outcome. It's almost a byproduct of the actions that you take. Um, you know, just like for a lot of people, um, getting promoted shouldn't be the goal that they're running toward. They should strive to do great work at high quality on something that they're passionate about and really want to spend a lot of time playing with those ideas because it's going to make them better and so on and so forth. And then, you know, if they do great work and they're in a company that, that knows how to value and reward great work, they will get promoted. If they're aiming very tactically at a promotion, they might cut corners in the wrong places. They might not invest in, in learning and building those networks that we talked about that are so important and so forth. And, and I think leadership is very much the same way. Um, we should find things that we are passionate about, things that we believe deeply in, um, issues or, or, or um, areas that we really you know, can almost find it hard to draw the line between this is work and this is my hobby. Um, and if we are involved in something like that, chances are we become some sort of leader leader of people, thought leader, organizational leader, and so forth. I love it. It actually, it reminds me of a Warren Bennis quote that people, I'm going to butcher the quote, but people don't set out to become leaders. They set out to do what they're passionate about. They set out to express themselves fully. And when that happens, people can't help but follow. I like That's it. it. I like it a lot. So the book again is Smart Collaboration, How Professionals and Their Firms Succeed by Breaking Down Silos. The author, who we've had the pleasure of talking to for a little more than the past half hour, is Heidi Gardner. Heidi, thank you so much for joining us on Radio Free Leader. My pleasure. Thanks for having me.